Spooks with Denzel Myrick and Douglas Skelton. And we're back and back with a burst. Back with a bang. It's Spooks. S-B-O-O-K-S. Your podcast of choice for just about everything. And remember to subscribe onto your podcast platform of choice to find us and not miss one episode. And this episode is one you certainly shouldn't miss. Isn't that right, Douglas? Certainly not. I wouldn't miss it for the world. Douglas, why didn't... Oh, no, no. We're not mm. going to do that. We're having a very brief introduction to this one because it's it's a, this gentleman has so much to say and is so well-versed from things to music journalism right through to... Uh, writing. He's an award-winning writer. He's an award-winning journalist. He was a boss of a TV station, and now he is a legend in sports radio. It's none other than the wonderful Stuart Cosgrove. Stuart, how are you doing? Very well indeed, Dan. Always a pleasure to speak to you. Looking forward to our conversation. We will have, a, as, as we have in the past, it's never uh, a pleasure to speak to Denzel Myrick. No, uh, it's just, you're supposed to keep just keep quiet and listening because Stuart and I are about to talk about football. All right, I'll just I'm go to sleep now. Well, I think I think Stuart, we'll not, and we'll not keep banging on about football, but I think that Steve Clark does what many Scotland managers before him has done, have done, and that is to play players out of position, and yeah. it's something that's always amazed me. And when you're a player that Danny McGrain, you can maybe do that. But there's not many Danny McGrains to the dozen. Yeah, and that, that's exactly right. Yeah. You know, and I thought that that Brian Fraser playing as a wing back last night definitely did not work. No. Uh, and when you've got one of the most promising young players in in the world uh who plays for the mighty Glasgow Rangers, they are available at right back. He should have picked them. Yeah. And I think the thing is that, that there was a opportunity there with uh, Nathan Patterson because, you know, Scotland were going to always have a lot of the ball. And so uh, Nathan Patterson was never really going to be exposed as a right back. He's a right wing back and he would have had plenty of the ball uh, Indeed. Uh, in the first half. And, you know, I think sometimes we, um, we need to play the players that can work for the occasions, but that felt to me like it was <clears throat> the wrong choice. It did to me as well. But we shall not stay in football. We'll come to that a little bit later on because it's part of your your long and illustrious career. And can I take you back, a way, way back in, to the mists of time? Not when you were involved in the great train robbery, but, but when you were growing up in Letham in Perth. Tell us about those days. And I came from a council scheme, Stuart, and I think that kind of conjures up uh, a vision in some people's minds these days, but I know it couldn't have been further from the truth where I lived, which is a very, very warm... Yeah, yeah. well, look, here, here's the thing. I grew up in um, Letham. It's actually, by some distance, the biggest council housing scheme uh, in Perth, probably the biggest in the whole Tayside region. And mm -hmm. I think there's a tendency, particularly from people that grow up in the West, 
uh, in Glasgow and Inverclyde and those areas. To look on Perth as being, you know, a, a wealthy town, a kind of Tory town, a posh town. And in lots of ways, the experiences I had growing up were exactly the same experiences as someone that might have been grown up in, in Greenock or in Airdrie or wherever. I lived in a housing scheme, Latham. It was mm. the biggest in the area. And uh, inevitably had all of the various kind of challenges that any uh, post-war Scottish housing scheme had. But it also had a lot of the great benefits of that public housing. Um, you know, I, I was unfortunate in the fact that my father died very early when I was about eight year old. And sure. so I grew up in a single parent family with my two sisters and my mother. But that being said, I grew up in a household that was emotionally uh, very, very, very uh, sustaining and, and very supportive. And I think an awful lot of people that look back on the bleakness of their uh, working class experience, you know, if you look at books like, say, Shuggy Bain, books like that are often to do with the fact that there wasn't the same level of, 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 of kind of guaranteed love in their lives, either because of dysfunctionality yeah. within the family or because of, um, you know, extremities like, for example, alcoholism uh, or all of those things. And I, I didn't experience that. I experienced being in a great family, albeit a very, very... Uh, economically poor family, but an emotionally very rich family. I was encouraged to read. I was encouraged to do well at school. I was encouraged to go and play and pursue the, the kind of uh, hobbies I had, which included um, obviously football, but more importantly, later in my life, you know, drama and uh, uh, public speaking and, and things like that. So I, I kind of look back in it with a fondness. Now, it's quite interesting mm. that there's a, a young man who's um, St. Johnson's uh, centre-back, a young guy called Liam Gordon, who's just who's been at the club uh, since he was about 16. And he's from yeah. roughly the same area as me. And he, he's kind of... We, we built up a kind of relationship where it's one of those things where we both recognise we're from the same scheme. Now, he's mm -hmm. a young guy that's playing in our first team. And how he speaks about the club and about the area he's grown up is with a great deal of fondness and love. And I think that when people grow up in an area, I, I think having that belief that it helped shape you is often a really good thing. And I don't like it always to be seen to be patronized or demeaned or, or any of those things. You know, I had a great upbringing, albeit in a very, very challenging uh, part of Scotland. Yeah, I think that's very interesting because talking from for myself, and I'll, I'll, Douglas will maybe come in a wee while about this, uh, you know, I there was utter warmth where we came from. I knew in that street that we lived, in the, the scheme in Campbelltown, one of two schemes, that I could have chapped in any door and yeah. known that I'd get a warm welcome and help if I was in any trouble if, in the absence yeah. of my parents for whatever, whatever reason. Now, could, could I just touch on your father? You mentioned him there. He was a very interesting man. I've listened to the off-the-ball stories about him. He, he was in the Communist Party, am I right in saying that? Yeah, he, well, he was actually um, in the far left wing of the Labour Party, but he was certainly very close to 
the Communist mm. Party, and I think probably um, was what they called in the days a fellow traveller um, mm -hmm. and, and was very close to it, always through the trade union movement rather than necessarily the formal political parties. And he was a trade union activist in the in Tayside. Uh, he, he worked, um, he had been a, a mechanic and then worked as an, uh, a, a long distance lorry driver for the co-op in, in, in Perth and Dundee. And his job was to uh, drive almost like an HGV driver who would drive out to the farms in and around Perth to collect sure. the kind of churns uh, of, of newly milked milk, of, of newly uh, produced milk and bring them back to the dairy in Perth where they were bottled and, uh, uh, and then put round the door. So although he was dealing in milk, he wasn't a milkman, he was a long distance lorry driver. Yeah, and yeah. Um, in some respects, it was in those circumstances that he died. He died when uh, a lorry he was traveling in, ironically at this time as a passenger, when the tires blew out and the the, the, the lorry veered off the road in, in a small village called Aleph and crashed oh, right, into yes. some uh, trees near uh, the entrance to a farmyard in, in Aleph and was, and, and was sadly uh, killed there. Now, at the time, he had just taken on a job as the district secretary of the uh, what was then called the Scottish Commercial Motorman's Union, so it was like the trade union for, for long-distance lorry drivers and, and had previously been nicknamed the Kerters because in the previous mm -hmm. generation, that would largely been delivery by horse and cart. And he was the kind of generation that had grown up with the lorries. Um, and he was really, really committed to the union and to the, the issues that it kind of dealt with. And it was during that period that he spent an awful lot of time moving between Scotland and Russia, Scotland and the what is now the Czech Republic, but then uh, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia. Um, and he was going often either for conferences or for inter-union uh, delegations and discussions. Um, sure. And it was actually when he was over in Eastern Europe that he became uh, famously for us uh, the first um, British citizen to meet Yuri Gagarin, um, the great uh, Russian uh, astronaut. And I'm massively proud of the front cover of the PA, which is our local newspaper, the Perthshire Advertiser, oh, yes. who went big on this story with the unforgettable headline, Perth Man Meets Space Man. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fabulous, doesn't it, Doug? <laughs> does, yeah. <laughs> uh, do, do you have that? Do you have that front page, too? Yeah, I've got it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. My, certainly, if I have my, one of my sisters, will have it. Yeah, it's it's just a great kind of Perthman. <laughs> one of those like, kind of things that has localness written all over it. You know, <laughs> it does indeed. And and even though sadly your father wasn't around for a lot of your life. Clearly, those socialist roots have rubbed off on you because, despite being uh, mixing in circles in the the you know chattering classes, maybe down south yeah. when you were working for Channel Four, you've retained your your socialist um, values. Yeah, I, I, I consider myself still to be a socialist. I don't believe in the idea that the older that you get, the more you move to the right or. The more you, uh, the more that you resist change. That's not how it's felt in my life. There's been 
a lot of change in my life, but I, I kind of also know, and I've, it's, it's a difficult thing to, it's a harder thing to, to write about this, but I've always found that um, I, I, I've built up over the years a very, very decent income with a radio show, with um, Channel mm. 4, with my um, you know media pension and with um, also books and things like that. And so I, I'm in a very, very comfortable period of my life. And if you were to ask me the, the question about taxation, I could afford to pay more tax. And that wouldn't, that wouldn't bother me. Um, it would be something that I would look at and say, well, by what other means uh, do you fund the things that are necessary within your life? So if you take, if you take um, my wee boy, Jack, he's got a mild autism diagnosis. Yes. Now, I, I need to know that when I'm long gone, that he's going to grow up in a society where there's a certain amount of investment in, you know, children, or in his case, he'll become, by the time I pass away, he'll be a teenager. And I, I want him to feel that he's supported, even although he's got um, an autism diagnosis. Well, the only way you can do that is by taxation that funds health services or interventions or teenage support or the job market, a whole range of different things, apprenticeships, you know, and, and I believe that those things need to be well-funded. It kind of annoys me. I, I don't mind people who, you know, who, as it were, make a few quid and protect their family and stash the, the money away. There's a natural instinct to do that. What I'm less convinced by is people who are extremely wealthy and then start to hide their wealth away from the tax man where the, they uh, effectively evade or in some cases uh, also avoid taxation. And, and I find that um, uh, unacceptable. Um, so yeah, I'm still probably on the left when it comes to matters like that. Yeah, uh, it comes across. I mean, I'm I've been a long term listener of Off the Ball uh, since its inception, and of course, just touching on Off the Ball, you didn't, you weren't the original co-host of Off the Ball, were you? It was Tom well, was the there. Year, the first year, it was um, a kind of zoo radio concept. There were actually, I think, mm. four or maybe five uh, people in the studio. It was around the time that. Um, Going back into um, the TV times, it was in the probably in the era where um, you know you had things like kind of uh, big kind of radio shows. You'd um, Steve Wright, people, and yeah, exactly. And you had people who had their little posse in the studio laughing at them and things like that. And it, it had a little feel of that. And I'd been asked by the then executive producer of the show to listen to it purely as a, as a football fan. And I said to him that I, I found that, you know, being very kind of clear about it, that I thought there was a lot of talented people in there, but it, it was struggling to assert its identity because there were too many voices. You didn't always know who was speaking. You didn't know that those people, what they represented, and therefore it was very difficult to kind of stay with it. Yeah. Uh, and two or three of them, uh, Greg Hempel, who was, who's of course become hugely famous with Still Game, and Sanjeev Kohli, who's also part of this of this Still Game cast, they were two of the presenters. But I think that both Sanjeev and Greg would admit that whilst they were uh, really kind of enthusiastic in the comedic sense, neither of them were particularly big football fans. 
they, they Greg supported Celtic. Um, yeah, they both supported Celtic. And so there was a, a way where the, the kind of tonality of it felt as if it wasn't yeah. quite sure what it was. And one of the things that they then said to me is, would you mind hosting it? And I said, well, I'll, I'll give it a go. But I think I don't think it should be that many people. I would rather go with just one person. So it was more with a guest, so that it was more conversational, more, if you like, a double act. And the person I selected was Tam Cowan, who at the time was one of the kind of uh, on the edges of, of the show. But he had one thing about him, or two things about him. Firstly, he was genuinely a football fan. He was a season ticket holder at Motherwell. And I had this idea that as a St. Johnson fan, he was a chance to have a show that wasn't always seeking to balance between Celtic and Rangers or indeed uh, reflect um, the opinions of either of those clubs. Here was a chance to do something slightly different with the so-called Diddy clubs. But the other thing, um, Denzel, that kind of came into it as well was I'd noticed something about Tam and it remains with me to this day, something a lot of people don't fully understand about him. He had in front of him during the show this uh, almost kind of complex grid uh, of words and references. And um, what he was doing was, let's imagine that it was February the 14th and it was the week of Valentine's Day. Jack, um, Tam would have Valentine's Day, then he would have something like love, romance, divorce, falling out of mm. love, He'd have things like that along the top. Then he would have Hearts, Hibs, Motherwell, St. Johnson, Celtic, Rangers, <laughs> and then he would have players. So he was immediately with the grid looking to say, what would be the perfect, what would be the perfect um, Valentine's card to send to Lee Griffith, right? So he was already <laughs> planning comedy and had a very, very strong sense of being almost a kind of swat of comedy. And a lot of people, because he can come over as being very, very natural, people don't sure. give him credit for the amount of work that he puts in to be natural. It's the age-old thing that you used to say about people like Davy Cooper. You even hear it about Lionel Messi as well. He's had to work tremendously hard to make it look natural, you know. And, and that's yeah. certainly true of Tam as well. Yeah, I mean, having been on the show a couple of times, that certainly does come across. You would think that Tam was utterly off the top of his head, and yeah. but, but as, as you as you describe, he, he's much more uh, thoughtful and 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 has. It does take hard work to do anything, not just comedy or radio production or books or TV. Yeah, everything involves hard work. And talking that, Douglas, do you have a a question? We must include Douglas. It's a shame. Yes, otherwise I've got no no function here. But I, I'm I'm you know I'm I'm looking at the off the ball um, page on the old interweb, and it says um, Stuart that you're the more erudite and highbrow half of the off the ball show, which is kind of like me to Denzel on this show. Yes. Um, yeah. But it also just to <laughs> just to take That's you away. That's why he's marginalising you, Douglas, because he knows that you're shiny. He, he, he <laughs> knows I, he knows I'm going to show him up. But it also says that you dislike all forms of socio-cultural bobaggery unless you're yeah. involved, which is kind of lucky considering the trilogy of books that you wrote yeah, uh, in yeah, the past yeah. few yeah. years. Do you want to talk yes, about indeed. them? I, I mean, I, I don't know uh, quite where they arrived at that. It's probably something that I've kind of uh, <laughs> said at some stage. But look, you know, um, Tam would be the first person to admit that, you know, I, I'm kind of well-read, I'm erudite in the sense that I am a great believer in 
intelligence. I'm not a big fan at all of people uh, not wanting intelligent thought to grow. And although off the ball is not always the best uh, place to um, try this out, I, I often um, will just simply say for effect to Tam, knowing that it's going to, uh, that's going to kind of trick him into reaction. I'll often say to him things like, um, I've been reading a fascinating book on identity and sexual transition, Tam. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, uh, transgender? And you know that he's kind of like, inside there's a bit of him kind of shaking to uh, find a joke in the midst of it. Or uh, there was one last week when I turned around and I said to him, Oh, um, I must say that the, one of the most influential things in my life was a reading about um, the Romanian absurdist director, Eugenie Ionesco. And I'll say things like that to him. And there's a side of him that goes, you get your silly fuck, right? But <laughs> it also generates in him a need to respond. And he then will turn around and I become the butt of the flow of jokes that come. But... Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that we, we both play a role and both, both play a part. And my part is to be the pseudo-intellectual and, uh, and uh, Tam's part is to prick my pomposity, if you like, you know. So, so that in, in that respect, it's quite a classic double act. If you go back, actually, the double act that we most resemble uh, for people of a certain age is Steptoe and Son, right? <laughs> In actual fact, I, I'm the son. So my aspirations are to have a good life, to escape from the scrapyard, to go to the opera, to um, buy a new suit, whereas uh, Tam's the old Wilfred Bramble character, eating um, pickled onions in the bath and getting stuff like that. So, so that in a way, it's very self-consciously a double act in that sense. I mean, I, I can almost hear your, your lip curl when Tam mentions his many visits to Las Vegas. Oh. And, <laughs> and I wonder, I can't really it's picture... Not that old chestnut again, you know. <laughs> He's the guy who's travelled the world and never left the Airdrie. <laughs> yeah, you can take the boy out of Erdrick, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. <laughs> now, I have this picture of a young man in a tank top, the morning star under one arm, Nietzsche in the other, uh, heading to Hull University. Yeah. Now, we, we have an little connection there in that my mum was from Hull. All right. Uh, what did you make of the city coming from Letham to Hull? You know, very, very, very simply, I, I, I loved the place. It it gave me an awful lot of things, Hull, and I'm still actually in con contact with the university this day. I got um, an honorary doctorship this, this year from Hull University. And one of the things that I liked about it, Denzel, which is kind of a strange place to start, is that Hull was quite badly bombed during the Second World War. Yeah. Quite, and largely because it was one of, uh, one of England's biggest uh, port cities and port towns. And that meant that it was, when it was rebuilt from 45 onwards, the city of Hull overbuilt. So the, the local council literally overestimated the amount of uh, housing stock that they had. And that meant that... Um, when the university uh, grew in the 60s and the 70s, 
all students had their own kind of, if you like, four or five bedroom houses that, um, and so you, you grew up in not a student residence or student, um, uh, you know, uh, halls or residences, but actually in a house, in my case, it was in a, uh, a town uh, in a street called Cranbrook Avenue. And mm -hmm. I loved it. We had a really good theater there, the Gobenkian Center on the campus. And I built up a lot of friendships. And although my scholarship, when I went to do postgraduate, took me to America, my resident, uh, you know, the uh, the place, the university where my PhD was um, was registered was the Hull. So I actually stayed in Hull for the best part of six or seven years. And oh. as to this day, uh, I've got a fondness for it. I don't really support Hull City. I don't follow the results. But periodically, if there are Scott that's playing for them, I have a kind of, I, I try to keep an eye on them. And there's many, many good examples of that. I mean, perhaps the one that I remember the most um, was uh, Billy Brown, the uh, former Hearts assistant manager, uh, and yes. he's played for Hearts and Fermanagh and other teams. Billy Brown was Hull's young Scottish superstar when I arrived down there in the early 70s and they used to train uh, on the campus on the Hull University playing grounds and um, their manager was uh, the great late great Tommy Doherty and just to have Tommy Doherty as a, a as a kind of figurehead that you would see across the university with this little uh, ginger haired fiery haired little Scottish guy Billy <laughs> Brown I just used to love that because there were Scots living in Hull at the time, you know. So I've got fondness for it. Um, it's not a place I travel back to a lot because I really, really found out quite early in my life that you don't go to Hull unless you're going to Hull. You know, you don't pass through. It's not like York or Leeds or places that you might pass through. If you're going to Hull, you're going to Hull. And the only other place that you can get to, ironically, is the Hookah Holland. There's a, a boat that obviously goes, but you come off the railway station, it's a terminus, and there's yes. a sign saying to the Hook of Holland. And, and yeah. that's where you, you get the kind of bus to the to the port. Um, so that uh, being in Hull meant you were in Hull. There was no through road to anywhere else. That's right. It's the A62, isn't it, if I remember yes, correctly? That's right. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I'd spent many phone times in the Hull. We've got about five minutes left, Stuart. Um, yeah. you, went, you went to Harvard University. Yeah. How does a lad from Latham and then in, from spent, you know, his, his tertiary education began in Hull. How does he fit in at Harvard? Well, I, I went to the JFK School of Governance. It's the one of the kind of top uh, schools within that Harvard campus. And, uh, you know, uh, this was really before online learning had really kicked in. I mean, you had, you know, computers on your desk, but you went to classes. So, you went to seminars, you went to lecture halls, lecture theatres, and I really loved it. I love campus life. All of my books when I'm researching, I tend to go out to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and I studied for um, six months at Howard University, the African-American University in Washington, D.C. So a great, great love affair with campus life, whether that's Hull, whether it's um, uh, Washington, D.C., or whether it's uh, Harvard. So I'm, I'm not phased by them. Uh, I feel quite confident on American 
um, on American uh, campuses. The only thing that I do is I sometimes get the language. The, one of the worst, I was at a place called George Mason University in, uh, it, it was in um, North Virginia. And I remember mm. I was staying with uh, some people in the campus and the system was that I didn't drive, but a group of students would pick me up in the morning and we'd go to lecture. And we got to this lecture late and I remember going in and said, uh, uh, Jill was running late today. I had to knock her up. Now, I meant <laughs> chapping her door. It sounded to the class that I'd been shagging her or something like that. And this big roar went up and they were all killing themselves laughing at my... Uh, Transatlantic faux pas, I think, would be the word you would use. That's the Daily Mail headline we were looking for. <laughs> Fabulous. Stuart Cosgrove knocks up st young student. Uh, that, that great stuff. Now, I have read your book on Cassius Clay, young Cassius yeah. And I've got to say, I've read a few books on Muhammad Ali, but I learned things from that book about Clay's younger life that I, I haven't heard anywhere else. In a couple of minutes, you know, how much research did you did you have to do for that, Stuart? It must have been enormous. Quite, quite a lot. And, and you know, these university campuses really help because one of the things, I mean, if you take um, a University of Michigan, one of its holdings, it's called the Hatcher Library, the uh, uh, postgraduate library uh, an Ar at Ann Arbor. It has one of the biggest holdings of uh, American newspapers uh, in the world. Um, and so let's imagine, I mean, there's a sequence, for example, where uh, Cassius goes to sign off on his title fight with Liston, and they go to Denver in Colorado, where at the time Liston's living. And I knew uh, that um, if I looked up the Denver newspapers, the Denver Post particularly, but other local newspapers in the Colorado area, that I would get things about their arrival there and where they were staying, where they were going, who mm. they were with, what other things. And then you look down the kind of list of adverts and you work out what musicians are in town. And out of that, you can create value that traditional research wouldn't do if you just looked up something on the internet and whilst I do research on the internet I also enjoy going back to local newspapers which are often a fun so if for example you're writing a storyline uh, about say a musician from a particular city and you find out that actually during that time there's a very very intense murder story that's happened in the city you would be mad not to kind of roll it in to the narrative to give this the story greater kind of texture and depth um, and, and the way that, you know, like uh, all, all great kind of crime writing, you need to create characters who, who you know in enough detail to be able to uh, make them come alive for the reader. And that's the kind of research I love doing. And a lot of that you do through local newspapers, not through sitting uh, searching on Google. Sure, it's fabulous to talk to you, and I thank you so much for taking time out. I feel as though we've not had enough time, but as usual, the structures of podcasting keep us to a schedule, which we yeah. have to adhere to. Um, one last thing before you, and very quickly, how long will you keep going and off the ball? As long as you well, can, or is there a finite time? Well, you know what? The thing about it is I think all good things come to an end, so... I don't know uh, when that date will be, but certainly from the point of the 
point of view of the BBC, and I know this probably troubles some people within the building, it remains their most successful radio show. I mean, we did a show only last week with the Nobel Prize winner, David McMillan, and so much feedback. I mean, they, you know, it kind of lit up our show, but also I think it lit up the BBC's schedule for that day. So it is a very kind of unique uh, show. Uh, and as long as we are, you know, capable of turning up on a Saturday and our love affair with Scottish football is hardly going to go away. So as long as we don't end up making it something that's so predictable that it runs out of its own steam, then it's like, um, I don't know, it, 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 it's like a good, um, a good series of books set in Campbelltown. They can you, just uh, you, oh, oh. Do, you, do you know a good can... series of books set in Campbelltown? Because I'm very interested to find one. I see. Yeah, yeah. did you see there's the green oh, eye monster? They're, there. they're always sniping behind your back, Denzel. Oh, no, no, oh, I, I snipe. I snipe to his face. But <laughs> I can always I always count the money, Stuart. That's what yeah, I do. Exactly. It, exactly. It, anyway, my friend, um, on to your own literary works of genius. Now, you've written across a number of subjects and very interesting ones as well, starting off, I think, with Hamden Babylon. Is that right? Yeah, that's uh, going back a wee bit now um, when I was uh, living in London and I had a, a kind of um, uh, nostalgic kind of distant love affair uh, with Scottish football, which has kind of uh, stuck with me all through my life. But the angle that I took for Hamden Babylon was derivative of um, the famous Kenneth Anger's famous Hollywood Babylon when he looked into yeah. the kind of the more kind of um, compromised personalities of Hollywood and I thought it was a good starting point for looking at kind of sex and drugs and the uh, and the kind of uh, drunkenness that had uh, beset Scottish <laughs> football uh, and, and some of the characters much loved even now within the game who were kind of great big personalities, you know, Jimmy Johnson, Willie Johnson, Jim Baxter, players of that kind that are kind of to this day iconic figures in the history of the um, uh, of the national game, uh, and of course they they brought with them a, a kind of working class attitude that they, they were still very much in touch with their roots. Uh, this was long, long before the kind of superstar era or even the kind of well-rewarded era. Uh, most of these, um, most of these uh, players didn't actually ever make a fortune when they were playing, although they were amongst the, the greatest in the world at the time that they represented their clubs and, and Scotland. And I, I was... Um, uh, reminded of a story about Willie Johnson when he was playing for West Brom after he'd come back from Argentina in uh, 1978, where he'd quite wrongly actually been um, sent yeah. home for um, supposedly for drug abuse, and he'd taken a, a pills that were actually effectively asthma pills that you could buy over the counter in mm -hmm. the UK. Um, but he came home in disgrace. But I always remember in a game that he's playing a, a derby game in the West Midlands. Uh, and he went to take a corner and there'd been an incident in the box and the referee stopped the game and a guy shouted from the crowd, 
Willie, are you still selling that garden shed you had? And Willie Johnson turned around and said, I mate, do you want to do a deal? And they did a deal for a garden shed while he was waiting to take the corner. And to some extent, that for me summarises what Scottish football was at that time with many players going down to England. And they weren't hugely well rewarded by comparison uh, today. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I think people like Jim Baxter and probably Jimmy Johnson and people like that would be earning maybe in the upper end of working class wages, but not much higher than that. No, no, I think they were pretty much on a par. If, if uh, Jim Baxter was to go into a, a pub in Fife, he would probably have been a guy that had a few quid in his pocket, but he wouldn't have been so far away from plasterers or plumbers or things like that. So it, mm. it, that's one of the key, key changes in football that, you know, still with obviously community clubs and smaller clubs, they're, they're closer to their fan base and the local population. But I think the further you get up the food chain, um, then uh, players are just simply out of sight, you know. Sure. Now, Leaving football aside, we'll move to your interest in Northern Soul. Now, your book, Young Soul Rebels, A Personal History of Northern Soul, was published. And I've never been quite sure what Northern Soul actually is. I mean, I know it's people dancing in clubs in Hull and Bradford and other places. But, you know, it's clearly tied to the soul um, scene across in America and Detroit and places like that. Yeah, yeah. Gives- it, well, first, the best way of describing it Uh, really, uh, is that uh, Northern Soul is to some extent a love affair with African-American music from the 60s, 70s, and to a lesser extent into the 80s. And the music was probably at its epic height in the mid-60s with the Motown sound when it first came over to the UK and young working class people here fell in love with that music and had their own local community youth clubs and soul clubs and things. And the Northern Soul scene maintained an obsession with that music even long after it had ceased to be the dominant music. So when, you know, pop music moved into, maybe into areas like, for example, progressive rock or even the the, the glam scene or whatever, um, and then disco, the Northern Soul scene remained loyal to the kind of essential sounds of 60s and 70s soul. But one of the other things that it did is it dug deeper because it was effectively also a collector scene. So although music was fairly well known from, say, Detroit or Philadelphia, there were endless uh, numbers of small independent labels in those towns as well. And then way beyond the bigger cities and, you know, places like Gary, Indiana or, um, you know, Chattanooga or wherever, these cities often had their own local recording artists and the Northern scene dug deeper and deeper and deeper into the uh, into the kind of history of it. So it was very much a collector scene, an all-nighter scene, an amphetamine scene, and a scene that kind of loved to pay homage uh, to great undiscovered Black American talent. Yeah, I remember you and Darkest Howe. I think it was Darkest Howe. He was discussing um reggae and you were discussing northern soul in one late night program many many years ago when wow. i was very very drunk <laughs> i can't even remember that so whilst i was sober at the time it's gone out of my memory bank there you go <laughs> oh I, I know now well i'll i'll give give Dallas love a question shortly but we'll just move on to your um your trilogy really 
that, yeah. that takes your love of Northern Soul into the society in which existed in America, in Detroit in 67, Harlem 69, um, and Memphis in 68. Yeah, this is where you juxtapose or contrast the soul scene with what was happening, especially within the black community at that time, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I, I had developed, uh, going right back to uh, high school uh, in Perth, where I'd done um, six-year studies in modern studies, I'd become mm. very, very interested in social history. And one of my teachers, Miss Campbell, had said to me that I should start researching, you know, the civil rights and the assassination of Martin Luther King and these big epic subjects from the 1960s because she knew about my interest in soul music. And even from school, I was encouraged to make sense of that, that there was events going on that either shaped or were the backdrop against which this music uh, was being created. And just as my life developed and I went over to be a student in America and I had a scholarship to various universities over there, it was just something that was a kind of big, big thing in my life. Now, I spent a lot of time editing it, first of all, the NME. Uh, and prior to that, I'd been a Northern Soul fanzine writer and a writer for Black Echoes, the weekly black newspaper. And so as a, as a consequence of all of that gathered knowledge, I had always wanted to write something that um, had a bit of scale about it. And the trilogy is quite epic in, in its reach and its scale. Uh, and, you know, what, one of the things about that is I'm immensely... Uh, proud of those books because I think they are uh, historically quite important in terms of what they seek to achieve and do, their style, their approach, their kind of the level of kind of research and detail that's gone in them. But the, the main thing about them is that they don't date. Um, all of those books now, if you picked them up and read them now, you're reading a slice of history at that moment. Now, interpretations might change and there might be uh, different ways of thinking about different artists, but by and large, the infrastructure of the books is, is still very much valid to today. And they sell, they just continually keep selling bit by bit, bit by bit. So I do quite well out of those books. Um, economically, but more actually, I think, reputationally, because I've been asked to write endless things uh, as a consequence of the success of those books, and they're quite an important part of, of my life. Yeah, and, and, and they were multi-award winning as well, um, I think. Yes. You, you won the Penderin Prize, for instance, didn't you? Yes, that was the, that's the kind of Mercury Prize of um, music writing, and it's uh, held in South Wales, actually, um, in Dylan, Joe, uh, Dylan Thomas's hometown. Um, mm. And uh, the, the, it's usually kind of a big book that wins it every year. And I was happy to have won it uh, in, uh, when Memphis 68 was published. Um, and I've been nominated uh, for uh, Detroit and for Harlem. So they're clearly kind of seen as uh, important books for that kind of culture of uh, pop music writing, you know. Yeah, I mean, and, and that follows on from your own time with the NME and with Face and all the rest of the things yeah. that you, you did. I mean, it's a natural progression uh, through to those books. And I've got to say that if you don't know anything about the struggles of, of black people in America in the mid to late 60s, and you're interested in the soul scene or interested in music in general, these are these are must-reads. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very, I'm actually quite proud of them. I don't actually say that 
a lot, but I think that there are things that when you know, I, I move on and leave this mortal coil, I think that there'll still be relevant books now, quite uh, whether books Absolutely. will be read in the same way, whether, um, you know, there'll still be the um, the same kind of fascination with soul music. I, I don't know about all of that, but they'll certainly still stand the test of time. I, I, absolutely. And bring, bring a point in that Doug, I know Douglas is interested, so I'll let him develop this, but we're often talking about attention spans and the way people read books. Douglas, um, you're interested in that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's maybe my attention span that's that's very, very short, but I, I find most books are are far too long. Uh, but these books, you know, they're, they're absolutely fascinating. And they're not just about music because they are social history, aren't they? Or, or social yeah, yeah. history. Um, so, I mean, it's an impressive achievement. I've got to say, I'm just looking at the stuff on screen. The other line that caught me, caught my eye is that he is a rare soul collector. And listening to you talk now, I understand that because I had a vision of you and like the Grim Reaper in the Seventh Seal and, you know, going round and touching somebody with your scythe and saying, you've got a very interesting rare soul. I think I'll have it. Um, <laughs> well, it's an equivalent of that. It just means that you spend far too much money on very obscure records. Um, <laughs> and in and, and actual fact, I successfully bid and won a record only this morning that kind of cheered me up because I've been trying to get it for about 20 or 30 years. And... Uh, it, 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 it came up and I, I managed to get it. So it's more money than you should ever pay for a record, but nonetheless, I, I felt I had to I had to own it. So yeah, I'm a rare soul collector, but you, your first point, Douglas, about scale and substance and whatever, I, I agree with you. I think there are a lot of books that are too long, but one of the things that I felt I was fighting here, and it's something that goes back to my days at the NME, uh, and even the kind of Pendern Prize that we talked about earlier. I think there's been a tendency in the UK uh, to, to see that kind of, if you like, uh, rock music and independent uh, rock and post-punk and that kind of tradition, that tram line of music that, that came up was always given at the enemy much greater status than soul music. Soul music was seen as kind of dance music. And I was determined really that when I wrote these books, I wanted them to be books of substance. I wanted them to be books that would actually, um, that, that would actually make a point in the sense of saying this music and, the, and where it's emerged from is substantial, more substantial maybe than uh, previous um, critics have given it credit for. Yeah, but they're still yeah, not over long. The Memphis one is the is the longest of the three, but it looks like, and it's only four hundred odd pages long. So it's I, mean, yeah. I would say that's that's a, a nice size, and the Detroit one is even is even shorter. So it's you know it's not. I mean, it's not that I'm saying that uh, anything you know shouldn't be examined in depth. It's just that I, I'm actually talking about fiction more than nonfiction. To, to be honest, yeah. is that quite often you find a book has uh, is, is a 500 page book and it's got a 300 page plot so yeah. well, and it's the well, same with tv thing, series um, one other thing douglas about that and, and i was very very conscious of that that i made the decision and this is something that came out of my work at channel four i decided that the book should have a format now the format's a very easily recognizable one. It's really the calendar of a single year in a single city. And um, the books tend to go 
you know, January, February, March, all the way through to the end of the year. Now, obviously, I stitch into that all sorts of other characters and evolving and developing plot lines, but their books are also formats. And I think giving them that simple kind of navigable format has allowed readers to stay with them so they can turn around and say, well, that's me to the end of May. I'll come back tomorrow to June. You know, they've got a kind of way in which they can kind of fold the book up and then fall asleep and leave it by their bed, but come back to it. Whereas I think with fiction, if it's a wandering, complex, multi-layered plot, you kind of feel, oh, have I lost my grip on this? Will I ever finish this book? You know, and I, I felt that the trilogy has real landmarks where you can map out that you're getting close to the end and you're and hopefully enjoying it as well. Yeah, but I agree with your main principle. I think there's a tendency in literature, this is true in America as well, to believe that a big doorstep 600 you know, page book therefore must be good when in actual fact um, some of them are, are too flabby. Yeah. Actually, I, I usually think when I'm writing the books, have I lost this here? Am I ever going to finish this? But that's another, yeah. another uh, story. And most, and most people reading them think the same things, Doug's. I mean, it's not not a patch of my 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 thousand page epic, the decline and fall of Douglas Skelton. So <laughs> it has it has to be seen to be believed. Now, I I think we touched on this last time, just earlier. Um, I read Cassius X, your book about the earlier years of Muhammad Ali and his 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 association with the Nation of Islam uh, and everything else that went with it. And I couldn't believe I've read a lot of books about Muhammad Ali, including some of the 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 much vaunted American journalists' um, books. And I th I don't think I get anything as much from them as I got from your Cassius X. I'm not trying just to be to ingratiate you, but. I honestly think that. How did you get to the minutiae of what happened in those years? Well, again, you know, going back to the core point, uh, my books tend to focus on a moment. In the case of Detroit 67, it's the summer when the Supremes are uh, at loggerheads and beginning to split up and the company itself, Motown Corporation, is coming under strain. And when uh, in that summer... Uh, Detroit itself is burnt to the ground uh, due to its uh, urban rebellions and riots. And so in lots of ways, focusing down on a moment helps you, in a sense, excavate and dig deeper. So with Cassius X, I wanted to focus on the year 1963. Uh, he had moved to um, Miami. Uh, he was already uh, a a member of the Nation of Islam who was preparing for his full conversion. So going to the mosque uh, every Friday and taking his kind of spiritual guidance from mentors, uh, one of whom was Malcolm X. And he was also at the time training for the world heavyweight uh, title fight against uh, Sonny Liston. But so many other things were happening at that time, not least, of course, the assassination of uh, President Kennedy, and a whole range of other quite big, epic parts of stories. But Cassius was um, Cassius was going out and was uh, dating a, a young um, soul singer called Dee Dee Sharp, who has actually got one or two that you might call Northern Soul Records. And she had been a very famous um, mainstream soul artist with uh, Chubby Checker in the sense that they would do twist records that would be commercially very successful in the, the early 60s. 
And uh, his, her relationship with Cassius Clay, who at that time was Cassius X as he was waiting to convert to Islam, uh, her relationship with him has literally been one single sentence in all those big epic biographies that you've mentioned, mm -hmm. because it's seen as kind of almost peripheral to his role as a boxer. And yeah. of course, if you're a soul obsessive, that for me is the book. I want to be in that relationship, understanding it more, understanding the dynamics, understanding the role that Miami played in his life, uh, that Philadelphia played in his life, where Dee Dee Sharp was from, uh, and also, of course, um, his uh, training uh, to fight uh, the great, great Sonny Liston, who I hope in the book, I, I tried very hard in the book, to rewrite people's um, perceptions of, of, of Sonny Liston because he was always a man that was easy to dismiss as a gangster, as a robber, as a thug. Um, and actually, as I researched their educational background, um, you know, Sonny Liston had gone to Borstal as a very young man and ended up in jail and was involved in, you know, robberies and violence. But, and this is a very, very ironic thing, he had a much considerably higher IQ than Cassius did, who was seen as this kind of voluble, articulate, yeah. smart, modern, young African-American man. And I like playing with those kind of character contradictions, uh, which in lots of ways is the stuff of fiction, as you know. But um, I, 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 I really valued spending time with those people and getting to understand them more. And I talked a wee bit at length to... Cassius's headmaster, who's hmm. now uh, an older man and, of course, uh, well retired, uh, and he had said that on the basis of the uh, of, of the evidence, there would it, that Cassius now would probably have been diagnosed as ADHD and would have had that diagnosis early in his life. And when you see some of his characteristics, even in the boxing ring, you can see elements in that in his personality. And I think thoughts like that are worth more than just simply one line. They're the stuff of five or six good pages, you know. So, so I kind of felt that I was going into much greater depth than maybe previous uh, biographies have done. And of course, uh, by virtue of focusing on the year 1963, I didn't have to explain, you know, what happened to, uh, uh, to Cassius uh, in the 70s, the 80s, and into, of course, the time when um, he lights the Olympic flame because the book was not about all that. And so its focus on 1963 gave it the kind of, I think, what you, you, you're talking about there, Dan, it gives it that sort of feeling of, um, of a deeper meeting with the man rather than just a generalised biography. Yeah, it's much more rounded, much more realistic than, than any book I've read about the whole, you know, his whole career. And you pick out things there that and that I had no notion of, and yet are fascinating at the same time. My father always castigated Sonny Liston as being a cheat, and he threw the he threw the match, and all the rest of the things that that were said as and have become apocryphal. But but you know it brought something to to me about Cassius Clay that, um, and you know I've got a greater appreciation of the man who was as I was growing up probably the biggest sports star in the world in the 70s. Yeah, uh, no question about that, and and quite remarkable. But for example, one, one thing that I love about Sonny Liston's story and why this isn't a, 
uh, why this isn't a BBC Scotland drama, I don't know. But Sonny Liston and his, and his wife struggled to have children. Uh, and they were, and Sonny particularly was very, very keen to have a child. Um, and so for a period of his life, uh, when his uh, boxing promoter here in the UK was the Glasgow uh, promoter, Peter Keenan, when Sonny came over 60, this would be 64, 65, he ended up actually partially adopting Peter Keenan's son, who was called Young Petey, and took him over to Las Vegas uh, for Christmas every year for two or three years. And he was actually quite keen to formally adopt him. Peter okay. Keenan, the father, said that would not happen. But there was a sense in which Sonny wanted to have this little boy around him in his life. And it's actually quite a charming kind of, almost like a kind of male love affair about a man who wants a young boy that he can influence and bring up. And the idea that Sonny Liston partially adopted a wee boy for Paisley strikes me as if there's not a drama in that, then I give up. You know? My goodness, there must be. I mean, uh, it, it, it really is an interesting... Is there a book in that, Stuart? Well, you know, th there may well be. I'm trying to kind of trace... I'm trying to trace uh, Peter Keenan himself for his direct uh, personal memories of being in Las Vegas and being at the Listons every second or third Christmas and, and actually travelling over. Didn't always go with his daddy. Sometimes went uh, on his own and was picked up at the airport. And sometimes Sonny was over here and took him took him back home with him and that. So it was kind yeah. of like a really, really charming. And it wasn't in any way sinister. They were He was genuinely... Uh, wanting to father a child, but for various reasons, uh, couldn't, you know. Yeah, now, that yeah. gives you a very different perspective of Sonny Liston than the rogue, the bank robber, the cheat, you know. It's a much more nuanced, much more gentle uh, perspective on, on on him, you know. So yeah. I, I'm kind of keen. It's always something that kind of interests me. So we'll, we'll see We'll see how it goes. And Douglas, I know we're pressed for time, so Douglas will take you into the next phase. Mr. Skelton. I'm sorry, I was... <laughs> I was just checking the time there. Yeah, I mean, that, that is absolutely fascinating about Sonny Liston. And I suppose that's the trick of it, um, is finding that one thread, for instance, the the the, the soul singer that that um, Cassie's Claire, Cassie's ex, um, dated. Which is lovely. And, yeah, uh, is, is, the, is the trick to this sort of book, uh, is, is just mm -hmm. finding that and then building on, on things like that. How difficult and, and are these to this? Sorry, on you go, Stuart. I was just going to say, Douglas, if you think about that, it's not a lot different from creating fictional characters where you say, well, okay, you know, who is this person? What is their backstory? What are they concealing? What are their personality traits? What have they done in the past that they regret? What, what's buried in their history? All of that stuff is the stuff of great fiction writing. And, and so I try to apply some of that to, uh, particularly to the trilogy. A lot of people have said to me, oh, they read like novels. And in lots of ways, they've been written like novels. Um, you know, that uh, the, the whole of Detroit 67, the first uh, three, the first three days, or no, no, but maybe even the first two weeks of uh, 1967 in Detroit, the city was beset with its worst ever snowstorm. And Barry Gordy, the owner of Motown, was trapped in his house. So I had to imagine what he was thinking and dealing with mm. in much the same way that um, 
you might in characterization. And I always remember, I like cutting out these things where great writers give you their tips and tricks or their top 10 or whatever. And I remember Elmore Leonard, probably the greatest Detroit crime writer of all time. Um, and he'd written a piece for the Guardian, for the Media Guardian, and it was his tips for crime writers. And he, his first tip was never, ever, ever start a, a book with the weather, right? Now, <laughs> now, the first day of 1967 was the worst snowstorm in Detroit's history. So I had to say, Elmore Reynolds, Leonard, beat it. I'm starting with the weather, whether you like it or not. You know. Yeah, yeah I'm afraid I break all of Elmore Leonard's <laughs> rules for crime writing. Uh, and, and many I'm more. Of it. Yes, and many and, more. And, and those questions you were outlining there, uh, Stuart, about you know, crime writers thinking, we do you tend to, to do that, you are correct, but generally when we're thinking about Denzel... So what, um, what's next for you? What, what are you going to do next? Well, I've just um, completed a book, which is, again, social history, uh, and it's called Hey America, Black Music and the White House. And it's the interrelationship between soul music predominantly, but also urban and disco and hip-hop. But it's the story um, of the evolution and development of black music from Dwight Eisenhower to uh, Joe Biden, um, and it is a big, big, huge sweep through the history of the way in which the presidents have either uh, abused, manipulated, or uh, in other words, been undermined by black music and black musicians. Now, obviously, primary among them are things like, for example, um, Richard Nixon trying to recruit James Brown to be on his campaign team for the uh, elections in the 70s. Um, the cop killer controversy with the Bushes where they, and Clinton, where they took on hardcore hip hop and tried to turn it into a kind of evil gun-toting uh, subculture. Uh, and then inevitably uh, with the triumph of Barack Obama, who was one of the people that really opened the doors of the White House to black musicians in ways that they'd never been opened before. And then of course the chaos of the Trump era. So it's one of these books that is big, it's meaty, um, and it's already attracting some attention from uh, overseas publishers and indeed from, um, uh, from film and television companies too. Well, I hope, I hope um, you'll send us an advanced copy of that. So your polygon will. We might get yep. it. We yep, might I'll get make one. sure that you do. You're a fine man. Now, I know you're pushed for time, Stuart, and we've thoroughly enjoyed um, our sessions with you. It's going to be an excellent podcast. Uh, and, you know, have you ever thought of fiction? Just as a quick throwaway question. Yeah, I, I have. And there are stories that sometimes come into my life that I think, oh, I could only really do that through through fiction. But I have to say, uh, Denzel, I'm actually really, really enjoy. I love the research process. I love being in libraries, digging into primary sources. And for example, in, in Memphis, I spent time at the University um, of Tennessee, and they have mm. all these holdings on the Memphis Police Department. I just love all of that. I love research. And I love uh, kind of digging and finding the little nuggets that make the book kind of feel different. Uh, but yeah, uh, never say never is the best way of putting it. Never say never is the, a lovely way to end the podcast. Stuart yeah. Cosgrove, thank you so much for your time. It's much appreciated. And I hope to speak to you soon.
Thanks. Stuart. You will indeed. Thank you indeed, gentlemen. Speak soon. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers, Stuart. Well, that was the wonderful Stuart Cosgrove, and I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, what a fascinating interview. Some, some wonderful subjects covered there and some things that, as usual, when I speak to Stuart, things that I hadn't got a clue about. What an amazing life. What an amazing yeah. um, career and yeah. such a varied career. And educationally, uh, you know, the writing, the TV, radio. It's just, who wouldn't want to have a CV like that? No, and, and, and fascinating talker as well, and a, a wealth of stories, particularly the Sunday Liston one, which was utterly incredible. I, I knew nothing about that. No, I mean, I, I think I said in, in the, during the interview that I'd read his Cassie Sex, and, and there are snippets and little little nuggets in there that I've never written. I've read quite extensively about, about Muhammad Ali stroke Cassius Clay, and I still think that Stuart tops the law and i hope that maybe one day he'll i know he, he he said it was thematic he picked out a year and he chose to to work on what happened during that year and in, in in florida <clears throat> pardon me but i think that if he could do that in the later part of of um the then muhammad ali's career it would be just fabulous yeah and as he said the 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 whole sunny liston thing uh, would make a great tv drama so if there's any Producers, any production companies listening, you know, get on to Stuart. That's a great drama. And get that sorted. We, Denzel and I, of course, will accept a, a moderate finder's fee for it. Well, I actually know a production company very well. So I'll be on the phone to them immediately and cut you out straight away. Why am, <laughs> I, not, why am I not surprised? And why didn't I get you to do your impression of Stuart Cosgrove while the man was listening? Well, we only had a limited amount of time to interview him, and I thought that he'd so much to say of so much interest that it would be rather um, ungracious of us to meet everyone. Well, Stuart, <laughs> what do you think of Douglas? Total knobbend. <laughs> and I don't know how he'd have responded to that. He, he would have argued with you, I think, because he's a gentleman. Unlike I'd probably have said, <coughs> no, no, Den, he's not as good as that. <laughs> I'm quite sure a man of such responsibility and education and refinement would have made the right call in, yeah. under those circumstances. Now, Coming up soon, we have many great things planned. We can't tell you about them yet because they're not confirmed. Yes, our but staff are working on them. They are beavering away in the office here. Our staff are beavering, which is yeah. always a good sign. Or, or our beavers are staffing. I don't know. It's one of the two. Yes, well, don't, don't carry on with that metaphor, Douglas. I know you'll get into dangerous waters, unlike the beavers who make me dams and things. Yes. And they'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And while I'm on, and just before we go, can I mention Steve Wallace? Now, I spoke to you about him earlier this week, and you refused to watch his video. Didn't oh, you? Oh, yes. Yes. No, I didn't. I didn't refuse. I said I would, just haven't got around to it. I'm a busy man, oh. Denzel. <laughs> oh, that sounds are so. Um, but Steve Wallace. On YouTube, just just look on YouTube for Steve Wallace, and he does these camping programs from Canada, and they're fabulous. This is a guy who, by his own admission, isn't a 
proper woodsman or bushman or whatever you want to call him, but he just goes and camps in a number of different ways in the beautiful landscapes of Alberta and British Columbia and various other places. And they are fabulous. I've been addicted to them for the last two weeks. Just wonderful. Well, you know, I will catch up with them. You, you, you maybe have time to sit around watching YouTube videos, but I've got the hoovering to do. Douglas, domestic goddess. Or something. Well, it's hard to say what you are, but but there's you, there's so many, you know, so many things could apply to you. The superlatives just don't exist to give a rounded ability. Stuart from his academic stroke, journalistic stroke, writer, award-winning radio broadcaster, etc., etc., channel TV channel boss. How can we encapsulate the? the skills that you undoubtedly don't possess. No, I, well, you know, I, I am indescribable. It's, it's got to be said. It's, in fact, it has been said quite often but by, you know, when I've been out on a date and they've said, well, that was in, indescribable. So what can I do? When you were out on a date? Yeah. Can you remember that far back? Um, it's, you know, as, as a stretch now, as uh, I'm trying to think, what year is this? This is 2021. Good grief. I know, doesn't it? The 1800s just seem like a moment ago. I know, I know. They, they do indeed. Yes, you and when you and Charlie Dickens were gadding about down... Chucky, Chucky we called him. Did you call him Chucky? Yeah? Chucky Dick, we said. That, that was his nickname, Chucky Dick. Chucky Dick. You and Chucky Dick were marching along the Strand, seeing which theatre you would, would jump into to, to watch yeah. a bit of a player, or maybe visit a mortuary or take a midnight walk around London. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what yeah. Chucky did, you know. Yeah, Chucky he did walked, do that. Chucky Dick did do that, yes. He walked around London in the middle of the night. Yeah. And that says it all to me. That says it all. One of my heroes. In fact, Charles Dickens. He spoke very well of you. He did. He did. And he was, he was right. He was right. He loved a bit of daily, did old Charles. He did. In fact, I always think he tried. He was trying to copy Dale in his last and unfinished novel, Edwin Drood. Yeah, I'm sure that was he was heading for a daily. I think just as it finished, the the chapters thereafter would have brought in Daly and Scott. What's going on here, Jimmy? Uh-huh. Something not right about this, Brian. I'm no fancy to myself, mate. No, no. What's that giant animal of it? Because you know, giant animals are my elite motif. They are. But we must discuss that on another occasion. We must indeed. And it's a long podcast, ladies and gentlemen, for which we have no apologies whatsoever, because I'm sure you'll find it enthralling. So it's from Douglas and I, it's goodbye. Say goodbye, Douglas. Goodbye, Douglas. Good. I, I kind of thought you would say that. And this has been another episode of Spooks. Don't forget, subscribe to our podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Anyone, we're everywhere, Apple, Google, Spotify, anywhere you can think of that you listen to a podcast, we're on it. And this has been a Houses of Steel production for Anchor FM, produced by Douglas Skelton.